Welcome to Mallow Street Talks, where we discuss pensions and investments. The government put out a call for evidence about a so-called lifetime provider model last November. This would give savers a legal right to require a new employer to pay pension contributions into their existing pension pot. Allowing savers rather than employers to choose their workplace pension provider would fundamentally alter the structure of the UK-defined contribution system. Could lifetime pensions be an elegant way to stem the flood of new deferred pots? Or would it make savers vulnerable to expensive or inefficient products? And what might be the practical hurdles to implementation? I'm Sandra Wolf, editor of Mallow Street, and to answer these questions, I spoke to Paul Leandro, a DC partner at consultancy Barnett Waddingham, and Tim Gosling, head of pensions policy at the People's Partnership, provider of Master Trust, the People's Pension. The announcement that the government wants to look at a lifetime pension pot, I think it's fair to say, took nearly everyone in the pensions industry by surprise. At the time, it seemed like a lot of people were still making up their minds about it. Have either of you come down on one side or the other? Paul? So is it okay to still be on the fence? I mean, I have have considered this long and hard, as you you can imagine, because it's going to affect my professional life. I, I think we're going to look back actually on the on the autumn statement as being a seminal moment for you know the direction of travel of the pensions industry. I mean I, I, I certainly see merit in considering this. You can see it as being a move to a more simple system, which I am all for. Things frankly are too complicated at the moment, both mm. both for employers and, and for the end consumer. I like the idea of empowering people to choose their own pension plan. I mean it, it should engage them better and give them a better sense of ownership. It should also accelerate scale, which I'm a proponent of. It does the scale does bring lots of advantages. I think my biggest question is: this the right time? It will certainly create a lot of faff and a lot of distraction, uh, and a distraction from what I think is is much more important at the moment, such as the problem around adequacy, i.e., people not paying pension enough pension contributions. Right. And also, we're not supporting people in making the right retirement choices. So it just feels as if this is the wrong time. So if it's the right solution, it's, it's possibly at the wrong time. And, then, and you know, when we think about the employer's role in all of this, you know, employer governance of pension provision, if done well, does work really well. It does break my heart at the moment. The current trend is generally for employers to reduce their focus on pension provision. And the lifetime pension model will exacerbate this. So in my mind, I think I'm, I'm mainly questioning as to what are the real objectives here. Is it genuinely to produce better member outcomes or is it to simplify things from a regulatory perspective? Or more cynically, is it, is it for the government to get hands on more pensions assets to help mm-hmm. grow the economy? Tim, how do you feel about it? The right policy so at the wrong time? Not quite. The, we were not really a sort of a, are we for or against? It was more, do we think this is likely and plausible or do we think this is unlikely to actually go forward and, and, and happen in the future? I guess the reason for that is looking at sort of the Australian experience, what seems to happen is you start um, tinkering around the edges with your sort of small deferred pots problem. And then you quite rapidly realise that the systems that you've built to deal with problem A will also solve problem B, which is 
know, how many pots you have overall in the system. And therefore, you can move quite quickly using the kit you've built to a situation where you've got one pot per person. And once you've created the possibility of that happening, it's then very tempting for policymakers to go that one step on and for them for it to actually happen in practice. So for us, it wasn't really a massive surprise. And it's something I think we consider really, really plausible. In terms of whether we're sort of for or against, I guess the main thing for us is I think you could do this well or you could do it badly. Policymakers need to think about what they want the shape of the market to look like, how they're going to ensure consumer protection in a very different market without employer pressure, and what that, that implies for how they structure a market based around pot for life. So I think there's a lot, it's, it's not for me about pot for life, yes or no, although that is obviously an important question. It's also about how do you make it work in practice? How do you take what's good about the workplace pensions market and project that forward? And also, how do you make pot for life consistent with other policy objectives like building scale, like the government's ambitions around merchant house and so on and so forth? Because you can see futures where pot for life contributes to those things. Equally, you can see a, a future in which pot for life fragments the marketplace and compromises a lot of what government's trying to do at the moment. So a lot to discuss. I think a lot that's, that's, that's really unclear, but will become clearer with time. Right. A lot of these practicalities, perhaps we could look to Australia, because that's pretty much the model that it's based on, right? Um, Paul, you've spent recently spent some time researching that system. Maybe you could say, what does it look like? What's different to the UK's proposals? And what's different in terms of the background and the infrastructure? Yeah, really, really happy to do that. So I've, I've been I've been to Australia three times now. The first time in 2014, we went very soon after the full freedoms were announced. So we thought, okay, with the, the, the pension system in the UK is changing. Let's go and have a look at a system where full freedoms have been in play, well, from, from day dot, really. And it's interesting what you're saying there, Tim, about um, looking at the Australian model and being careful that we don't create a fragmented market. Because I think looking at Australia... It was fragmented, but becoming less so over time. So, so let me let me give some context. I mean, it is a it is an excellent system to compare against the UK. We also hear rumours that the DWP has been tracking the Australian system for quite some time now. But the Australian system was codified on UK law. So, from a structural perspective, it, it mirrors our own. So, they have corporate funds out there which are akin to our employer-sponsored own trust schemes. They've got industry funds set up for specific industries, but set up on a master trust basis. So very similar to our master trust framework. They have retail funds, which are similar to our contract-based plans. And they also have self-managed super funds, SMSFs, which are akin to SIPs and SASs. So very much a, a mirrored system. It's it's TEE in structure, which means that contributions are paid in after tax, but investment returns are free of tax and withdrawals are free of tax. In Australia, the employer contributions are mandatory. So they're currently at 11% of salary, mandated to increase to 12% by 2025. Employee contributions are voluntary, and the average amounts are between 3 and 4%, around about that at the moment. But I suppose the biggest or one of the biggest differences in Australia is scale and yeah. so you know the, the system is effectively two nearly three times uh, larger than ours so there's currently around four trillion dollars in the DC system in Oz with some very large funds so Australian super fund for example is the largest with some 300 billion funds with less than 30 billion are considered small uh, and with the scale 
you know, obviously comes investment opportunities. So there is a significant investment in infrastructure, both in Australia and globally. Incidentally, a lot of UK infrastructure, airports, ports, toll roads, example, are owned by Australian superannuation funds. And a trend that I think we're all very interested in uh, that's happened in Australia is consolidation. Consolidation has happened at pace. So I mentioned that corporate funds are akin to our own trust uh, pension schemes in the UK. There's now only 10 of them in Australia. And it, you can see this is the way that the UK is headed. We, we see a future where our know, own trust pension schemes is probably going to be only the largest. And those which are looked after by the most paternal employers will remain. There's also lots of mergers amongst the superannuation funds in Australia. So retail funds, interestingly, are reducing in number. Uh, they're finding it difficult to compete with large-scale industry funds. And Australians' way to address the small pots issue is that they've recently introduced stapling. So employers have to pay to an employee's um, existing superannuation fund unless the employee chooses otherwise. Right. And are there any, uh, you've mentioned fragmentation of the system, which is becoming less, but are there any other sort of pitfalls to avoid or any recent experiences with stapling perhaps as well? Yeah, so I'll pick, pick up on my, my comment about fragmentation. So, yeah, so when mandatory superannuation came in, you know, you had a number of corporate funds, a number of industry funds, a number of retail, and the, perhaps Australia's best kept secret, which nobody really talks about, is that between 25 and 30% of DC assets in Australia is in self-managed super funds. So this, and it's, and it's relatively easy for somebody to set up a self-managed fund mm -hmm. in Australia. And it means that, you know, that they're effectively having their assets outside of the system. You know, they can invest um, as they see fit and, and can invest in some particularly volatile investments, such as cars, antiques, etc. And generally speaking, self-managed super funds are not performing as well as large-scale funds. In terms of, of other pitfalls, I think it's safe to say that in Australia, there has been a fixation on accumulation. So whilst the pension system as is was effectively launched in 1992, the argument is that the first generation of Australians with purely DC assets are not retiring yet. We'll do soon, but haven't done yet. Mm -hmm. So all of the investment initiative has been around accumulating assets and marketing to individuals, which is an important point, uh, and also mergers with other funds. There hasn't been much innovation in the at-retirement space, for example. You know, the status quo supports the funds. In Australia, people generally are not drawing enough from their pots in retirement. There's a perverse race to be the richest person in the graveyard. Yeah, and that, that serves the providers, that serves the funds, because it means people are retaining funds, yeah, retaining assets in the funds for longer. It has actually come to a point where the regulators had to step in uh, and they've introduced a retirement income covenant, which is mandating superannuation funds to have much better, robust and salient at retirement strategies. I think one other pitfall just to focus on is, is around engagement. The Australian providers actually look to the UK for inspiration on engagement. They're where, where money is being spent attracting individuals in Australia is on marketing. But yeah, I think the way that Pension providers in the UK engage with members, more digital solutions is something which the Australians are aspiring to at the moment. That's interesting. Tim, do you see similar pitfalls and how do you view engagement? I, I think there are certain there are certain things that I would be, I, I see some strong parallels in the UK. I mean, obviously, we are seeing a slower pace of consolidation than, than Australia, but we are still seeing that pace of consolidation. I guess my question regarding pot for life 
and that fragmentation or consolidation dichotomy is how easy would it be in the UK to become a pot for life pension provider? And then how do pot for, new pot for life pension providers then compete in what regulatory regime against incumbents? So I guess that's one sort of question there about sort of system design and pot for life that's been resolved in Australia pretty much. Um, they've already got a, they've got a market that I think they're pretty happy with. It's delivering the scale providers that I think all of us think are more likely to produce good outcomes for customers. It's yet to be really sort of broached and resolved in the in in the in the UK. In the in the DWP's consultation paper, they're sort of hinting that they might go through a a further process of consolidation and then bring in Pot for Life as a as an end stage for the for the market. But equally, there are those out there and in the policy firmament who've responded to the proposal by saying, well. We think retail should be allowed into the system at the at the start as well. There should be harmonisation of regulatory regimes and so on and so forth. So a lot of comparisons there with Australia, I think, are really useful, but also a lot of things to resolve in the UK and a lot of questions. If we think the Australians have got a lot of stuff right, how do we make ourselves more like Australia and avoid the fragmentation that's, that's possible if we do pop for life badly in the UK? Paul, you mentioned there also the large percentage of of, uh, small self-invested funds and you mentioned retail providers, Tim. Is this pot for life like the logical next step in the DC journey, this further retailisation of workplace pensions? I'd say two or three things here. One's about marketing. Um, If you look at what it costs to distribute a stakeholder pension, for those who remember stakeholder pensions, 150 basis point charge cap, of which 10 basis points was typically spent on fund management uh, and multiples of that spent on on marketing. You look at the the experience of the Mexican system, where again, they allow a sort of pot for life user choice arrangement. Most people or many people who swapped out of their incumbent provider into a new provider did did so to one with higher fees that was spending much more on advertising. So there's the potential there. One of the good things about automatic enrollment is we've stripped out a lot of the distribution costs. Pensions have by and large got cheaper and we're spending a greater proportion of charges on things that really matter. There's a potential there if we get pot for life or to send things into reverse. The second thing, and backing up very much Paul's comments on self-managed super, if you look at sort of the, the Swedish experience in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, most people who made elective choices in the Swedish PPM system uh, in terms of their own sort of fund management didn't beat the default. And critically, they didn't beat the default. And then they stuck in their own self-managed choices, which continued not to beat the default. So there's a sort of both people, A, made poor choices, and then they did a sort of set to get strategy. So there are limitations to invest individual choice there and the power of engagement to drive good performance. I think the third thing is the weakness of the buy side. I mean, without wanting to sort of get too, sort of put my head too far into the lion's mouth, um, the FCA wrote to 42 providers about retained interest in on investment platforms. And I don't want to get into the rights and wrongs of that. I just want to say that's one thing that you see where customers are not able to pay adequate attention to what they're really being charged. And that's not really the fault of the providers or the customers. That's a structural problem. It's it's a problem with the structure of the market. The buy side just is just not weak enough to exercise enough scrutiny to drive proper competitive pressure. And that's why we're seeing what we're seeing in that neck of the woods. Employers are, in my experience, a lot better than individuals at buying pension schemes. 
And that, along with regulatory pressure, is one of the things that really drives quality in the web page pension market at the moment. That doesn't mean every employer is good at it, but enough of them are good at it and engaged for that to really drive quality that then goes on to affect the whole marketplace. The other thing that's important, I think, significant is the existence of Nest, which effectively says, you know, you, you can't, it's very difficult to operate a, a workplace pension that is in some way not competitive with, with Nest. There's a market down for quality set by the government that everyone has to, everyone has to accommodate themselves to. So I think there's lots of differences between a potential sort of pot for life market that involves retail and is based largely on engagement and where we are at the moment. And the question for me is how do we pick and keep the good things about what we've got at the moment in the future if we do move to a pot for life arrangement? Because it's not clear to me that that will be automatic. Paul, do you have a view on this? So listening uh, with interest there, Tim, and agree with with everything you're saying. I mean, I think it leads to you know what does could it could it lead to a future where you have only got a handful of pension schemes, let's say the master trusts, that can qualify to receive employee contributions through a lifetime pension model. I mean, in order to get through all of the challenges that you just listed there, Tim, that would seem you know, the logical place to end up. Where you know where you've got individuals making a choice, a limited choice of pension schemes, rather than from the sort of full universe of options that are currently available in the market. Yeah, I mean, we're, I think I don't think it's one of those situations where we're not in a position where we've got a position on this yet. I think what we're doing at the moment is sort of outlining principles and good features about the workplace pensions market, and thinking, okay, how would we want those to persist in the new world? I also think possibly we could be in a situation where the future pension is not a, you know, it's not necessarily a workplace pension or a retail pension. We simply have a new thing that is regulated differently, but that it has more in common with the workplace regulatory regime than it does with the sort of freer regime for retail. I think it's important that if we're thinking about quality and if we're thinking about consumer protection we don't wrongly create barriers to entry for new providers i wouldn't want to create a market or i wouldn't want a market to be created that is stayed set in its ways and stagnant i would want something where providers can come in and shake things up i think that's really really important but equally that has to be balanced against the need to ensure consumer protection mainly through regulation because regulation has been very effective at driving better quality pension products in the uk and competition yeah yeah i think that's really important i think we're in the uk certainly where we're seeing most innovation is because of competition if that's to attract more employers or whether it's to retain more members, because you know we we you know we know that the biggest threat to to master trust at the moment is is high value assets being transferred into the retail space. So yes. having whatever future we have where we can still have competition, I think that's only a good thing. We won't have innovation unless we have competition. I, I agree very strongly with that. I mean, I think one of the things that policymakers are going to have to consider is what axes do they want competition to occur on. And I would circle back there to this point of making a moment about marketing and marketing budgets and the potential for people to be attracted by things that are essentially well marketed but are fundamentally not much more sophisticated than the workplace pension products they're they're transferring away from. It's sort of option A. 
Option B, I mean, I'm quite excited, and I'm possibly the only person in the world to be excited by this, but I'm excited by the FCA's forthcoming consultation on value for money, which I think is going to be very, very challenging for the sector. But I think we are edging towards transparent value for money metrics that will aid both employer selection of pension providers, but also in the future should also enable consumers to make smarter choices about workplace pension products and potentially retail pension products and in, in, in down, down the line. I think having that kind of thing in place and potentially on pension dashboards is something that might make a pop for life market work. But I would see that very much as a sort of precondition, something that you need in place so that people can actually make adequate, accurate choices about what they might be getting themselves into. And I think whatever future state we're moving to, I think it's still incumbent on the regulators to retain focus on this. Because if there's one thing that, that Australia teaches us is that providers will not innovate, they won't invest in proposition unless they can see a reason for it. So when we went out in 2014, for example, we were going out there to expecting to see, you know, lots of innovation in terms of how Australian funds have, have helped people at retirement, given that they have full choice. We didn't see anything. And when we asked the question, why not? The answer back was, well, there's no reward for innovation. And that's why, you know, the regulator essentially has had to step in. So unless the regulator is, you know, whoever the regulator might be in the future, but you know, unless they are totally focused on the system and are nimble enough to react to it, again, with that focus, as Tim was saying, you know, on value for member and focus on good outcomes for the individuals, we can't ever lose sight of that. And one thing I'd like to talk about is the government's made an interesting connection between lifetime pensions and collective defined contribution, which is another well, innovation. So in its call for evidence about the future direction of workplace pensions, it said there might be mutual benefits between the two, um, suggesting that the first could help CDC gain a foothold. Do you see it that way? Or do the two actually sort of go counter to each other, with CDC being a more sort of institutional type of pension? So I think we need to look at places where CDC works well. At the moment, our, you know, we've built something in the UK that is essentially for very large employers who've got a stable workforce whereby cash flow into the scheme is essentially a, a product of workforce planning assumptions. So your Royal Mail, you know how much money you've got coming in because you know how much people and how many people you employ. And you can make sensible actuarial projections based on things that you know. That's very different to launching a product and then trying to market it and in a competitive marketplace where people can go elsewhere and they cannot choose you and they can transfer out. So the fundamentals about how CDC works in a competitive marketplace, I'm not sure have been fully thought through yet. That's even before we get on to talking about how it works for a pot for life environment. CDC works in the Netherlands where they have compulsion and they have industry-wide schemes and you are in you know, a scheme XYZ for as long as you are in that sector. And that enables a degree of, of, of stability in that environment that helps make that benefit type work. So we think there's a lot of sort of spade work to be done on how you would get a competitive market working in the UK and CDC or alternatively, how you would reform the CDC, the UK pensions market, to make it potentially more like the Netherlands. And that, those seem to me to be sort of be your two choices. And we are, I think, on quite an early stage of how we might go about doing that. 
obviously, again, legislatively, we're some way back on this as well. I know the sort of multi-employer CDC is, is, is sort of being through consultation, but we're some way back on important innovations, though, like the CDC decumulation, where I think a lot of people have been talking quite excitedly about how that might work. We're some way away. There's a lot of stuff to do. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm not saying anybody's got anything wrong here, but I think we have got some, we've got some spare work to do before we can come to a, a decent position on this stuff. If we are comparing ourselves against other systems, I think we need, we need, we essentially do need to be experts in those systems. I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, say comparing against the Dutch market when we talk about CDC. The Dutch market is reforming. They made the conclusion that CDC in the previous structure wasn't working. And it's interesting that, you know, our, our current CDC models that are being implemented or being talked about effectively mirror the old style system in Holland, not the new style. So I think we need to be very, very alive to what issues are happening globally so that we can pick from the best of breed rather than make uh, the same mistakes. Yeah, yeah I agree with that very much. Apart from CDC, there are many other uh, initiatives underway in pensions at the moment, a whole raft of proposals to do with investments with DBDC. You've both sort of mentioned timelines. How long would it take to bring lifetime pensions to the UK, realistically? How long's a piece of string, Sandra? That's a really difficult question to answer, I think. I think, so again, so sort of leaning on the Australian model, you know, it works over there because there's a central clearinghouse. There's, you know, expecting an employer to pay to hundreds, maybe thousands of individual pension arrangements is just untenable. So there, there has to be a central clearinghouse built, whether that's by the industry or the government takes that in-house. Instantly, just anecdotally, we hear that in Australia, the government encouraged the industry to build the clearinghouse initially, and nothing really happened for five years. It was only when they stepped in, effectively were much more forceful, then it was built within two. You know, I don't want to talk about dashboards and how long that's taking, but that is going to be a complication. Another complication, which I don't know is much talked about, is, is how we're going to deal with tax relief and the lifetime pension model. Tax relief is applied in, in different ways. You know, if it's contributions going across gross, contributions paid net and in tax relief being applied afterwards, or if contributions are paid via salary sacrifice. So we'll need a much more simplified model. Could that be us being shoved to a, a TEE model? Like in, like in Australia, and getting rid of tax relief. Big question mark. The complication there is DB accrual, of course, and particularly yeah. civil service schemes. So, you know, are we looking to uh, much more reform in that area too? Another argument for, for CDC. Yeah. And, and what about, um, you mentioned a clearinghouse. What about identifiers, unique IDs? Do you think that could be a stumbling block? Absolutely. Data is an issue. Unique identifiers, quality of data, security of data, yeah, I mean, you can see quite a few hurdles that we need to get over just to create a system that can cater for the lifetime pension model. I, I'd strongly agree with that. And then the other the other thing that we've got that they haven't is UK GDPR. And obviously, as you'll, you'll be aware, the dashboard is or dashboard architecture is set up to work with the grain of that and is configured in a way that runs with the grain of that. Sharing data, matching data across multiple different providers is legally very, very difficult. There's all sorts of things that we need to consider and what I think would be quite a long discovery phase. And Paul, just out of it, I have something like half a billion dollars in my head for the cost of the clearinghouse. Is that accurate or am I a way off base there? So I haven't seen exact numbers, but anecdotally, it's, it's in that order. 
That's a big number. So obviously a question about who would finance it. Yes. I mean, the Mexico, the idea would be flagged that the Mexican system is is funded by an ongoing charge on, on assets under management within the Mexican pension system. So again, big decisions, but there are funding models available there if government chooses to go in that direction. If, if government does choose to go in that direction, but um, obviously we don't know what government we will have quite soon. There's a, a general election. So does any of this matter, do you think, if there was a change of government, this would still go ahead? Yes, I think it's uh, not yes, it's sure it, it, it will go ahead. Yes, I think it matters. So looking at what Labour has said so far, obviously we understand Conservative Party policy pretty well, have them having been in government for some time. Looking at what Labour have said, Labour's concerns around investment in less liquid assets uh, with a, a view of one eye on the green transition and one eye on UK growth rates businesses, they've got themselves into quite a similar place to the Conservative Party there. Not identical, but similar. And the policy reforms report to the Labour Party conference makes this very clear. So the pressures that have got the current government to the current solution on, on small pots are similar to the pressures that would be on a Labour government and consistent with the things Labour had said. So it's, it's possible that they may choose to go down the same sort of consolidation-based path. Beyond that, I think we're, we're guessing a little bit. It's not clear to me that the Pop for Life proposal is particularly consistent with sort of Labour's historic attitude to the pensions, the pensions problem. Last time Better Labour was in government, we got something that was very much based on inertia rather than um, individual choice in the form of in the form of automatic enrolment. So we'll see. So, so my my guess, and this is very much a guess, is that consolidators we may see continue pop for life. I think there's a there's a discussion and a debate there to be had. It would surprise me if Labour was focusing on the detail of pensions policy at this point rather than thinking, goodness me, how do I win a general election? So I'm guessing their heads may be elsewhere, even if this is super important to us. bit early to, to say at this point. Paul and Tim, thank you. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to know more about pensions and investments, go to mallowstreet.com.